You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It's Monday, May 11th. We have Ed and Ash standing by. But first, we at Real Vision have been covering the global recession, the economic shutdown, and many other pivotal elements related to the ongoing pandemic. And the question that's been on our minds is, what's next? What can we expect going forward? So over the following two weeks, we're embarking on a journey to dive deep to find the answer to this question. It's called the global recession. What's next? We've lined up some of the brightest and most legendary minds in finance. Today, Real Vision CEO Rao Pal launched this journey with a fantastic expert view about how his unfolding thesis is playing out. If you haven't seen it already, check it out. Tomorrow is Rao and Kyle Bass. Wednesday, Ed and Richard Koo. Thursday, Brent Johnson and William White. And Friday, Rao and Howard Marks. And that's just the first week. Over the next two weeks, some of the best investors in the world are going to share with you the risks and opportunities that they see on the horizon so that you can protect and prepare yourself for what is to come. Over the course of this campaign, we're asking the questions that matter and we're getting answers from the people that matter. So this is not something that you're gonna to want to miss out on, so please stay tuned. Before I kick it to Ash and Ed, here's something that we've been following closely. WeWork is attracting the spotlight once again as they move to defer rent payments and renegotiate their leases. Commercial mortgage-backed securities backed by WeWork's rental payments have already plummeted, with lower-rated tranches suffering the worst losses compared to their higher-rated brethren. Many of WeWork's tenants have already frozen payments or canceled their leases, but now it looks like WeWork is doing the same thing to its landlords. Who are its landlords? Well, if you own any CMBS or you invest in a fund that does, you're on the hook to collect WeWork's rent. Best of luck to you. WeWork's future is looking pretty bleak, as it's unclear when their tenants will return to work, if at all. So it'll be interesting to see how the CMBS market reacts to these drastic and desperate new measures to skip rent or negotiate payments. So it looks like the insolvency risk is spreading throughout the daisy chain. Very remarkable stuff. Who better to make sense of it all than Ash Bennington and Real Vision's fearless managing editor, Ed Harrison. Guys, what do you make of this? It's Monday. May 11th, 2020. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined by Ed Harrison, our managing editor from Washington, D.C. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ed, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, actually. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. My computer died over the weekend, and uh, I'm rolling on an old laptop, so apologies in advance if the sound and uh, video is not as strong as it usually is. Yeah, that is really annoying, I have to say, when that happens. Uh, the blue screen of death or black screen of death, whatever it was that you got. This was the black screen of death. This was the no screen of death. This was total brick. Yeah, um, I've been there many times, I have to say. Just a reminder to always back up your information. A good and well-timed reminder. 
So, Ed, what are you watching these days? We've uh, all had, uh, I think, periods where our model is a little bit evolving, our framework is evolving. What are you looking at? What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about uh, the the EV that uh, Rao did uh, that came that was released today. That's starting out these two weeks of this content campaign because I think it's a good framing. I've been using his framework, which is this uh, three stages of recession for some time now: the liquidation, the hope phase, and the insolvency. And I think that you know there are some differences in terms of how I look at the insolvency phase, and he does, you know, when it begins and so forth. But I think it's a very good framework, and so I definitely want to uh, sort of do a deep dive into where we are and what that means for the real economy because he's been talking about what it means for uh, the financial economy, uh, for shares and, and, and other sorts of, uh, of asset prices. Yeah, I found his expert view extremely compelling as well. And there were also some really terrific charts that I thought illustrated the points he was making in a very powerful way. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, uh, you know, his talk about debt deflation reminds me a lot of an interview that I'm going to do with Richard Koo, or actually I have done with Richard Koo that's coming up. And, uh, and it, you know, I just thought it was a great, uh, a great expert view from Raul and uh, a good jumping off point for us to talk today. Yeah, I thought so, too. I think it's really interesting the way that he deconstructs it at a series of different levels. Uh, he talks about it on the on the tactical or uh, or um, technical level, and then he analyzes and breaks it down further uh, into the deep fundamental level about what's happening in the actual uh, real economy, which I thought was a very compelling way of framing it. Well, you know, in terms of the real economy, let, let, let me get to that, because uh, here's how I'm thinking about it, is that uh, right now, the thing that's most on my mind is the fact that people are chafing at lockdowns. Uh, yeah. Over the weekend, I saw reports that it's not just in the U.S. It's uh, We're talking about places like Germany. There were lots of uh, protests in Berlin over the weekend. There have been protests in Bern, which is the capital of Switzerland. Uh, North Rhine-Westphalia. Uh, there have been protests there, which is the largest uh, Bundesrepublik in Germany. So, you know, a lot of protests all over the place. And, and what are they about? I mean, different people have different reasons for protesting uh, the lockdowns. Really, you know, it's about freedom at the end of the day. And I think at, for me, the you know, you have the anti-vaxxers, you have the people who are concerned about their freedom being abridged and so forth. You have people who are concerned about the fact that they won't have jobs if they don't start work again. And so I think it, it really, for me, m makes the point that it may not be the government leading people, but people leading the government. So when you think about how this has come about and why we had lockdowns to begin with and why we're releasing them, a lot of it has to do with consumer behavior. Uh, the the reality is that consumers uh, were very frightened at some point in time. They didn't want to go out. They didn't they didn't know what to do. So government st stepped in and said, "We're going to lock the whole thing down." Uh, now we're seeing the opposite happen. That the lockdowns have become economically unviable. We're going into a severe recession, probably a depression-like scenario, and people are flouting the lockdowns on purpose because they just can't take it anymore. And so governments are releasing those lockdowns as we, we think. So when we think about what's gonna happen going forward, I think that is a driving factor. The factor is consumers leading government, not government mandating X or Y, but consumers saying A or B, we're going to do this or that. And so that's how I'm definitely looking at it going forward. Uh, an example will be, uh, I saw an article in the New York Post about a Colorado restaurant that was 
reopening. And there were a lot of people, a lot of patrons there. Is that a, a sustainable model over the longer term if, say, for instance, infection rates go up? I think those are the kinds of thinking, that's the kind of thought that I'm thinking about on a macro level and then also um, on a sector level in terms of airlines, tourism, restaurants, things of that nature. Yeah, that's extremely well said, Ed, and you brought up a lot of, I think, points that are absolutely crucial. You know, my view about the disconnect that we've had in this country, and it seems to be it seems to be very regionalized, uh, is that, in, you know, it's attributed, I think, falsely uh, to the narrative that everything gets attributed to today, which is red states versus blue states, pro-Trump versus anti-Trump. I don't actually think that's it. I think that this is a coincidence that, you know, the folks who live in the less populated regions of the country happen to vote for Donald Trump uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons. But the driver isn't their love of this president. It's the fact that when you live in a place where it hasn't really caused true human damage, it's very hard to relate to it on an emotional level. You know, here in the Northeast in New York, where I am, we all know people who've gotten sick. Unfortunately, most of us now know someone who has died from this terrible disease. And when it strikes you in that way, uh, it's very difficult to, to think about the economic impact of it when people that you know and have known for many years uh, are dying. You know, my father's physician uh, died about two weeks ago, and he was treating patients until eight o'clock at night uh, the day before he was hospitalized. I mean, these are really, truly gripping emotional stories. And when you feel that, it's very difficult to, to think about things that are other than saving lives. In places elsewhere in the country where people haven't been as hard hit, they watch it on the news and it's it's just, it's a different kind of connection to it. And I think it's only incidentally about politics. I think it's really about population density and the regions of the country that have been most affected. And right now, unfortunately, uh, here at the epicenter in the New York metropolitan area, it's still, uh, it's still uh, you know, it's still quite bad. And there are, you know, the ravages continue. Well, you know, on that note, you know, uh, for me personally, that I uh, took the antibody test because, yes. you know, the last day that I was in New York, which was uh, the last uh, week that I was in New York, which was early March, I had dinner with someone, a friend of mine from business school. She texted me a week ago telling me that she took the antibody test and she was positive for coronavirus antibodies. So then I thought to myself, you know, I've had mild symptoms that I wouldn't call them severe. Uh, maybe it was a cold, who knows? Uh, let me take the antibody test. Uh, I, I came back as negative, but just the whole concept, just, be, you know, I, I got a text from contact tracing, if you will, telling right. me I could have coronavirus. That definitely gives you a different uh, thinking about the the, the disease, the virus, than if, say, you're in Paris, Texas, where in Paris, Texas, a nursing home was an epicenter of a new breakout. They had already released because everyone in Texas is releasing. And then suddenly now you have this massive spike in, right. in coronavirus cases. And so then they went and tried to get the tests and there were no tests to be had for all the people who needed the tests. So I think this is the sort of uh, conundrum that we're in. This is that in a place like New York, where you had the lockdown, uh, you have the situation you have there. In Paris, Texas, uh, you didn't have the, you don't need the lockdown, or you didn't need it as much. But now maybe you are yeah. going to need it as much. And so yeah. obviously, the time that you had to be able to prepare to get the testing. That's the most important critical factor, because at the end of the day, it's all about what understanding who has the virus, making sure that they aren't infecting other people. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, to the point that I was making earlier, obviously, Texas uh, votes more conservatively than New York. I just don't think politics matter a whit when people that you know and love and care about are getting sick and dying. And I think that's unfortunately the deciding factor here is what happens uh, with this virus. You know, we were talking about earlier the framework that Rao brought to this, the idea that we were looking at technical retracement levels, for example, in U.S. equity markets, especially. And then we were looking at some of the deeper um, some of the deeper impact uh, from the U.S. Uh, economy. He was looking at aggregate debt levels, looking at debt to GDP levels, uh, looking at things like uh, corporate indebtedness, the ratio of investment grade uh, to uh, to uh, sub-investment grade bonds, all of these things. And the third layer, I think, to this, when I think about my own personal framework, uh, is what is actually happening on the ground with the virus. Uh, and this is a, a crucial time, as you point out, places like Germany are beginning to ease their lockdown now. The R naught factor, that's the rate of transmission in Germany, is still above one. The last I saw it was 1.13. Now that means that the virus is still expanding. It's still spreading. Germany is now taking, uh, as you pointed to, I think earlier, uh, the, the step of uh, beginning to open their schools. Now, as a New York City bachelor, uh, I don't really think much about schools, but this is a crucial point because without schools reopening, you can't have a functioning economy because parents don't have daycare. So this is really the first pivotal, crucial step uh, to reopening uh, the German economy. And the answer right now in terms of where we stand is it's really unknown. We just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, obviously, they are going to be, uh, you know, Germans are very diligent about health care. They're going to take uh, social distancing very seriously. They're going to take PPE very seriously. But the outcome uh, of that opening up of schools and then eventually opening up of German industry remains unknown. And the only way to find out, unfortunately, uh, is to actually have the experience and then see what happens. What are your thoughts about that, Ed? Where do you think the likely outcome is uh, and what's the impact on the economy? Yeah, so I'll give you uh, three examples, uh, uh, Germany, Sweden, and Iceland. So in Iceland, a friend of mine, a, a guy who uh, I correspond with on credit write-downs, he was telling me in Reykjavik, uh, they're at about 95% uh, normality. Uh, they've had the most testing per capita of any country in the world. They took a very Swedish approach to, you know, what I would call a very small lockdown. But they're a small nation. Uh, they're surrounded by a huge body of water. It's easy to keep people out. They're quarantining any visitors for two weeks if they come in, et cetera. So they don't have really any cases by comparison. So that's that's the one. They're up to 95 percent. So you can get to 95 percent on some level. Now then let's go to the other side, Germany. They they had an R factor of 0.65% at its lowest before they opened up. As you said, it's gone up to 1.13. That's, you know, a very huge jump immediately after they first opened up. The hope is they therefore they'd stabilize because they you know, they do a lot of testing. But we don't know if that's the case or not. We still have border controls uh, between various states. So we, we don't know. Uh, then let's go to Sweden, which is in the middle. They have, uh, they, they still supposedly are under 1.0 for their R factor. Uh, and so, you know, there's not an escalation there. But at the same time, when you look at the pr prognostication for how their economy is going to do, they're still going to fall six or seven percent. Um, in the in the second quarter, maybe even more for the third quarter. Overall, for 2020, people are talking in the region of 5%, 7% fall. Why is that? 
consumer behaviors change. Also, mm -hmm. their open economy, a small open economy, they're dependent upon exports. And as a result of that, that's going to hit them as well. So really, the, the, the final analysis is, uh, yes, you can get to 95% like Iceland, but chances are you're not going to get there over the next 12 months, say. And the best you could hope for is something in the order of 80, 85%. Uh, Sweden, they might get to 90%. The United States is going to is going to do considerably worse than that, and I think that if you look at asset prices, they're priced, especially in equities, for a level that is far above that that level that I'm talking about right now. And so that's when you get into the whole insolvency question and the debt deflation that Raoul was talking about. Yeah, let's uh, let's chat a little bit about debt deflation. Why don't you uh, give your view about where you think we are in uh, the potential for debt deflation, kind of a Fisherian type of scenario? Yeah, so I mean, Rao was talking about the insolvency phase coming later. I'm thinking of the insolvency phases starting right now. And I'm looking at it, let's say, with a Richard Koo uh, aspect to it, because I spoke to him last week about his idea of the balance sheet recession. The interesting thing he was talking about is that, you know, in a normal environment, that is, is when you're not indebted the way that U.S. corporates are, for, as an example, with all the triple Bs that are out there, you are maximizing profit uh, from, let's say, 2012 to 2018. To a certain degree, you could say that these companies were maximizing profit. After all, they were loading up on debt in order to get their earnings per share up so that they could you know, maximize their earnings, at least on a per share basis, because that's how they, uh, you know, they're compensated as executive managers. But now we're in a different scenario where I was just telling you that maybe we can get 80%, maybe we can get 85% of what the levels that we were before. So you're taking a hit on revenue at the top line of 15%. What are you going to do in that case, especially if you're leveraged up? What you're going to do is you're, you're going to uh, you know, try to pay down debt as quickly as possible. So that's a situation in which there's no capital spending. Uh, people are really you know, paying down as much as they can. And that's where the debt deflation begins. If one person or one company does that, that's OK. But if everyone's doing it at the same time, then you, you know, my income is coming from someone else's spending. All of that's going to be a collapse. And government is going to have to fill the hole. Government as a percentage of GDP is not large enough to be able to fill that hole. And so that's where you get the defaults, you get the uh, liquidations, you get the credit uh, crunch, and you also, as a result of that, you get the debt deflation. So my thinking is, is that we're there already. When you see companies like J. Crew uh, going bankrupt, when you see companies like Neiman Marcus going bankrupt, it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. We're now in that period where this is going to continue. You know, that's such a great summary of debt deflation and that view of the world. I'm really looking forward to seeing this piece with Richard Koo. It's also striking to me that the only other two times that I can remember hearing these conversations uh, are, number one, obviously, in 2008 and 2009, and second, in uh, my you know college economics class, historical discussions of the Great Depression. Right. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I would add, you know, the Japanese debt deflation as well to that. But, you know, from a Western perspective, we didn't cotton on to that until much later. You know, one thing that, that Rao was talking about that, I you know, outside of the paradigm of debt deflation was Europe. 
I, I, you know, I'm looking at a list of different things that I wanted to cover based upon some of the things that he was talking about. I think Europe is a very interesting case. I was talking to uh, some people who were very uh, clued into Europe, and we were doing a contrast to the United States and Europe. Now, when you think about the U.S. with the loss of 20 million jobs in that last jobs report that came out on Friday, you're not seeing the same numbers in Europe. That's because, obviously, the government can fill a hole much easier in Europe given their social safety net. So on its surface, you might think, therefore, that Europe is off to the races relative to the U.S. And what's more, obviously, they are releasing out of lockdown a lot earlier. Uh, you mentioned Germany as an example. So perhaps uh, you know there'll be some upside over the near term, as I've been postulating. But over the longer term, I think that the European uh, monetary situation creates a, a drag because you really can't get the fiscal spending that you want. There's not going to be any sort of debt mutualization there because that's just never going to happen with the, the Dutch and the, the Germans. And so you have a very binary outcome, as Raoul was saying. Either uh, you're going to get the euro breaking up or you're going to see them come together in some sort of fiscal union or uh, there's going to be some sort of default within the within the eurozone so i think that you know there are there are very limited number of outcomes there and none of them are very good yeah i i think that's exactly right Ra was discussing the concept of debt jubilee as well um, he believed potentially starting in japan uh, and then coming potentially to the u.s uh, and Europe. You know, the other thing that sticks out in my mind when you're talking about sort of durable longer term trends and points that Raoul made, uh, if you haven't seen this expert view and you're a Real Vision subscriber, go and check it out because it's really, it's really quite compelling. Um, the, the two things that I, that I picked up on um, talking about durable longer term trends, and I'm looking up here at another monitor with a, with a chart on it. Uh, the first is the, is, the, is the expansion, the massive expansion of triple B debt. Uh, as a relative percentage. And this is something that dates back uh, to the dark days of the financial crisis. It begins around uh, late 2008, and that line continues to rise on a percentage basis. Now, again, triple B debt is one grade uh, above junk, uh, and that has expanded massively. And Raoul has, uh, has discussed, and it seems like a quite plausible scenario, that there are going to be additional downgrades actually into junk territory. And the second uh, and the second point that I think is really interesting is when you look at U.S. federal debt uh, as a total percentage of GDP, uh, this has been rising, uh, well, it, it begins rising in the late 70s and it peaks uh, around uh, 1995 and then it rolls over and it starts rising again uh, in around the year 2000 at the end of the uh, dot-com era and it has risen steadily not just uh, between 1999 and 2007, the period prior uh, to the Great Depression, to the Great Recession, but also dramatically at a much greater slope uh, from 2009 onward, which is no surprise to people who have been Real Vision subscribers. Uh, and we now are approaching the 107, 108, almost 110 percentage level of debt to GDP. These are durable trends that were certainly not caused by the coronavirus crisis, but are being exacerbated on it and potentially, um, you know, risking some sort of a trigger moment, maybe a Minsky moment to get back to our earlier conversation about Irving Fisher and Hyman Minsky. You know, I'm not really concerned about either of those factors, to be honest with you, because on the one, uh, Japan's at 200 and some percent uh, debt to GDP. And you know, the United States is a currency issuer. They can always make good on what are essentially IOUs. They can just uh, create more IOUs. 
But then when you talk about the triple Bs, the Fed has already said that they're going to do a backstop. So if you're a fallen angel, basically you have a liquidity uh, event uh, for the Fed. The real question is solvency. It's mm -hmm. not about uh, whether or not they're going to uh, be downgraded to double B because that's a liquidity event. The question is, is do they have the wherewithal to get through this, uh, this crisis? So when you talk about durable trends, I'm thinking about consumption. Let me give you an example. Yeah. I saw an article in uh, a Swedish daily called Dagens Nyheter that said 17,000 uh, planes were being parked around the world because literally 17,000 planes are usable uh, because that's how much of a drop in, in, in flying traffic we've had. How long right. is that going to last? They say it could be two years that many of those planes are, are parked and they can't even find enough spaces for them. It's almost like what we were seeing with regard to oil at Cushing that you, there were, you know, it was overflowing because you didn't know where to go. So that's, a, that's obviously a trend if it lasts for 12 months, two years, where you're going to see massive bankruptcies. The airline industry is is in a world of hurt where you're either going to get the bailout from the government, which you probably will, but since these are large industry, uh, large companies, or they go bankrupt. Uh, right. Another example would be the one that I used last week about the Swedish uh, restaurant business. Even though Sweden has been in a fairly, um, you know, mild lockdown uh, scenario, there's still massive numbers of bankruptcies already happening in their restaurant industry. So if you think that's the a, a, a place where the consumer is leading government, and this is a trend that's gonna continue over the longer term, what it suggests is, is, is that you're gonna see more bankruptcies, and that's a sector that's gonna be hurt over the longer term. So these are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about, and that's where the debt deflation comes into play. You have oversupply, uh, you have all of these companies who are trying to pay down their debt, uh, and then, what happens, especially as Raul was talking about, in terms of uh, when you get to a deflation, uh, uh, when you get to zero percent or you get, you know, minus two percent, say, in inflation, suddenly the real cost of money starts to rise. And then you're in a real problem. And I think that's where where we get into the uh, into, you know, the, the vicious cycle that uh, that begins things. Yeah, you know, just to pick up on the thing that you said first uh, about uh, about the debt to GDP levels and rising triple B, I, I'm not worried about an insolvency of the U.S. government. But if you think about the example that you made, uh, that you pointed to in Japan, where you have a 200% uh, gross debt to GDP level, uh, you know, clearly the risk is misallocation of capital. The risk is zombie. Uh, companies. The risk is a decline in the productivity of the real economy. And that's something that obviously is a, a model of Japan's that the U.S. would not like to emulate. To pick up on the point that you made about airplanes, I read a really interesting deep dive in Forbes uh, over the weekend uh, about what flying may look like in the post-coronavirus age. And the, the short answer is, uh, if you thought the changes that came from 9-11 were monumental for the travel industry. Wait till you see what may be coming in the wake of coronavirus. Uh, you know, screenings and various checkpoints and temperature checks and uh, passporting for people who have 
you know, antibodies and all of these kinds of things. It seems as though it's going to make a, I mean, if you've flown recently, it's obviously it's not a pleasant experience in general, but this is uh, an impact that could be really quite great. And of course, and I think you sort of were alluding to this, uh, this is something that obviously the airlines themselves are in, in, in very, uh, you know, not so great shape, I think it's reasonable to say. But there's also the question of the follow through effects on this, uh, you know, the tourism industry, other things that are going to suffer in business because, uh, you know, you can you can postpone a trip for a month or two without probably too much damage to your business most of the time. But when business travel, the ability to go and see customers and talk with customers and establish relationships and do prospecting and all the things that uh, business people around the country uh, are so used to doing and so deeply ingrained in their workflows. You know, it's really scary when you think about the potential impact. I don't want to be too sky is falling about this, but what it means uh, for the country if travel uh, begins to be significantly impaired as a consequence, not of the short-term crisis, but the long-term changes that may be necessary to combat this virus as we go forward. And, you know, I was thinking about that. Uh, I think, you know, places like Sweden or Switzerland are good examples of that. Uh, let's imagine you uh, want to go on vacation or you're a business person. Oh, let's say business is out. Uh, business travel is is much more limited in terms of flying. But let's talk about le leisure travel. Uh, if you're a Swiss citizen, what's the likelihood that you're going to use leisure travel within Switzerland versus outside of Switzerland? Uh, same thing with Sweden. You compare that to, say, Spain or Germany or, or, or Greece, and you see that actually Switzerland and Sweden probably make out in terms of their citizens staying at home versus foreigners coming in, whereas, you know, there's a massive... Uh, number of uh, people who come into Greece or Spain relative to those who fly outside. So you have those kinds of, of um, effects. Another effect would be AutoNation today. I heard uh, that they released a report about people, you know, really wanting to get into their cars, that people, they want to drive and they want to be in their own personal bubble more than fly. So right. what does that mean for um, the oil consumption that results from that, jet fuel versus gasoline, what does that also mean in terms of deaths uh, as a result of coronavirus? Because obviously we know from 9-11 that when people move from flying to driving, you get more deaths on the, on, the, on the road as a result of that. So you have these kinds of shifts that I think are not going to be you know, one month or two months. They're going to be multi-month type of things because, again, the consumer's leading government that, you know, we have altered patterns in terms of our consumption habits, and, and those patterns are going to stay with us as long as the threat of the virus is with us. And, and I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, these are, all, these are all important points and very difficult to predict ahead of time. You, it's, they are sort of very much wait and see. We're going to have to just watch this very carefully. You know, final point that I wanted to make, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this, for people who are trading these markets a little bit more tactically, I'm curious what you think about the stories that are coming out of the White House um, that we've seen, uh, you know, Mike Pence's chief of staff testing positive for the virus. Uh, she's married to uh, Stephen Miller, uh, a very controversial uh, advisor to Donald Trump. We have uh, Mike Pence now in isolation. We have David Fauci, Dr. Fauci uh, in isolation. What What is the implication of this for markets when people this close to the president of the United States are getting sick with the virus. Markets don't seem to have moved much today. You know, the S&P, the Dow, uh, basically flat, uh, NASDAQ up almost three quarters of a point. 
I think that the, uh, the I would say I would extrapolate that to places that are opening up and say that you know the virus isn't dead yet. It won't be in, entirely dead during the summer, even though you have the hot weather. And so those places that are opening up the most, that are very underprepared, are going to see there are factors going up to you know two, three, five, and then you know whether they shut down or not, people are going to consumer behavior is going to to impact. So we're going to have a second wave, and that second wave is going to affect consumption in a negative way. And that negative effect on consumption will be felt in the market, uh, you know, I would say probably a month, two months down the line, because it, it takes a while for the incubation and then for the, the, the spike to occur. So by the time we're talking in July, it'll be a very different story than it is right today. So I don't really think I think that we're still in a hope phase, that we're still in a place where, you know, people are releasing from lockdown. There's a lot of hope associated with that. It's only when the R factors start going up because of exactly the points that you were making with regard to what's happening in the White House that people then start to realize, oh, maybe we should pull back because I, I don't want to die. And, uh, and then that's going to have a, a very negative impact on the markets. And one more question for you. You've laid out a very clear and I think very comprehensive thesis and explained your worldview very clearly. What are you going to be looking for in terms of evidence uh, to suggest that your thesis is on or that it needs to be adjusted? I think uh, the early bloomers, the ones who supposedly did the best coming in uh, to see what happens in those countries. You know, the numbers coming out of Germany are certainly worrying. They're the closest to the United States in terms of, you know, large international uh, economy, uh, 80 million people versus 330 million. I would look less to, say, Denmark and uh, New Zealand uh, as, uh, as cases of people who have uh, countries that have done well. But I think that Germany, what's going on there will be very instructive for the United States in terms of what we can expect. Uh, you know, they've had the same protests that uh, we've had in terms of lockdowns. And so I think that, you know, in terms of a liberal, uh, you know, um, society where people can do whatever they want to and, and there's not the overbearing reach of government into your lives, that's a good place to take a look and see, you know, how is this thing going to play out? Because that's our future, perhaps, uh, one or two months later. Yeah, indeed. A very important topic, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to talk to you, Ash, and uh, good luck with your computer, by the way. I'm afraid I'll need it. Thanks again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.